Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to part two of my conversation with Dr. Adam Simon. Dr. Simon is a professor of energy and mineral resources at the University of Michigan. His scholarly work focuses on the global flow of energy and mineral resources with an emphasis on the geologic availability of critical minerals. So let's continue our conversation now on the research that you're currently working on at the University of Michigan. Specifically, how is this researching informing some of the issues that we were talking about previously with mineral exploration and then policy advocacy around critical metals? So my research focuses on understanding the genesis of different mineral deposits. How did those deposits form in space and time so that a genetic model Think of that as a recipe for how nature created that particular volume of the Earth's crust that is enriched in lithium or copper or gold or rare earth metals. That genetic model is critical for mining companies who are exploring for new mineral deposits in both brownfields areas where other mines currently exist and in greenfields areas where there are no currently operating mines. So mining companies use these genetic models as part of their exploration strategy. So what I do is I work with master's and PhD students here at the University of Michigan and mining companies around the world to help mining companies understand how currently operating mines, how did that particular ore deposit form? And then how can those data inform exploration for new undiscovered deposits. So I guess one of the questions that I also have too is, I know that you talk about some of the courses that you specifically teach at the University of Michigan. So do you ever incorporate some of those historical case studies as we were talking about previously into the work that you're doing and how do your students kind of relate to some of those case studies that go back further in time with the extractive industry? One of my most popular courses is a course called Natural Resources, Economics, and the Environment. And in that course, I start from the Old Testament. So I actually start, lecture one is the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, there are by name what we call the seven metals of antiquity. And these are metals such as gold and copper and silver and tin that humans have been using for thousands of years. And I walk students from the Stone Age to the Copper Age. The Stone Age did not end because we ran out of stones. It's because humans figured out that we could use copper and copper was a more effective tool than stones. And then I walk students from the Copper Age to the Bronze Age, to the Iron Age, and then ultimately to our modern world where we're using something on the order of 80 metals in the periodic table in our electronics and our homes and our businesses and our vehicles. As part of that historical discussion, I point out, for example, Wisconsin. If you look at the state flag for Wisconsin, there is a symbol for the mining industry. And what drove European colonization of Wisconsin was the abundance of mineral deposits that contained iron and copper and other metals. It was the reason that European immigrants colonized Wisconsin 
and ultimately established the state of Wisconsin. If we look at the state of Michigan, the Upper Peninsula was the leading producer of copper in the world from the 1850s through the 1870s. And every penny minted by the U.S. Mint in the 1850s and 60s and 70s is Michigan copper. And so what I try and do is describe in sort of a narrative form a story of how humans have been connected to mineral resources for thousands of years. Our connection to those resources literally put places on the map and created trade routes. So if you look, for example, at biblical history, if you look at ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt, sub-Saharan Africa, Europe, when you look at trade routes, those trade routes exist because in one location, humans found gold. In another location, humans found salt. In another location, humans found copper. And mines were built in each of those locations and trade routes were created or trade routes evolved because of the location of those mines. And in this course, I also try and connect students in a tangible way to mineral resources and ultimately present to them that we have a limited number of options if we want the energy transition as it's described where we eliminate our dependence on fossil fuels and we only rely on renewable energy, that scenario, that outcome requires mining. And what I try and do is I tell a story in that course and other courses where students are made aware of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Any decision to build a mine somewhere, that invariably, it comes with risk, right? If you build anything somewhere, there's the risk that there may be harm to the ecosystem. But our ability to transition our energy from fossil fuels to renewables requires building mines. So we have to make those decisions. And I think where we are today in most more developed countries is we sort of have people in a pickle. The majority of society, conservatives and liberals in the United States, social democrats and conservatives in the European Union, The majority of people, when you knock on the door and you poll them, they're completely for the renewable energy transition, but they're opposed to the mining of resources for that energy transition. And that's the mindset that has to change. That's the pickle that people are caught in. And what I try and do with my classes, since these are young adults, 18, 19, 20 years old, U.S. citizens in my class are going to be future voters I try and inform them as best I can without bias. Here's our reality. Here's where we are. Here's where we all say we want to be. Here are the ways that we can get there. We are the impediment. When we say no mining, that also means we're saying no renewable energy, no battery electric vehicles, no wind turbines, no solar panels. So the collective we have to accept and appreciate that mining is necessary to achieve the end goal of reducing, if not eliminating, our dependence on fossil fuels. It's really fascinating, too. I think for me, one of the biggest worries that I have is just timing of all these different issues, right? The timing of when we need the metals, the timing of when we want these certain climate goals, the timing of how long it takes society to come on to things and generational gaps and knowledge. And I guess the next question that I have is that We're seeing all these federal investments and interest by the government in the mineral space, you know, mining in the extractive sector and critical minerals and metals. 
they're discussed pretty frequently up in DC now. So it's becoming more of a discussion. However, there is such a gap in knowledge. There's such a gap in what we need. And as you brought up clearly, it takes 15 years possibly to set up a mining operation. What do we do in that time frame? Like, you know, what's the most effective way to try to get people to understand, like, look, we know you have these preconceptions about mining and stuff, but the timing is really a critical problem here, especially when you start pulling into geopolitics with China and Russia and other countries when you start thinking about that. I think mining companies are in a pickle in that area as well, because a lot of people talk about the negative perception of mining by the general public. And part of that, it follows from this modern news coverage, which if it bleeds, it leads. When there's a tailings dam that fails in British Columbia, or a few years ago, a tailings dam that failed in Brazil, and there were human fatalities, that makes the news. The 999 operating mines that never had a single problem, nobody talks about them, right? The news rarely goes out and just interviews people who are smiling and happy to go about their day. So a lot of people talk about how we need to change society's perception of mining. And I agree. I think that's where the U.S. government can play a major role. I'll give one example. One of my graduate students is working on understanding the genesis of clay-hosted lithium deposits in the state of Nevada. Now, lithium, as we all know, is required to increase production of battery electric vehicles so that the United States can completely transition all of our vehicles to battery electrics over the next roughly 10 to 15 years. So you would think it's a win-win. We find a volume of crust in the state of Nevada. It's in the, literally the middle of nowhere. It contains this incredible concentration of lithium. So we have a domestic resource of lithium, which Auto companies, GM, Chrysler, Ford, can then use to build battery electric vehicles in the new battery manufacturing facilities that they're building. Again, you think, okay, this is a win-win. Who's going to oppose this? But there's significant opposition. There's a front page article in a prominent newspaper that emanates from New York City. And that front page article painted a rather negative picture of lithium mining. So then you have groups of people who come out in opposition to lithium mining, and then you also have special interest groups elsewhere that fund those groups. So then you're left with, well, then where do you get the lithium? We want the lithium. We want the battery electric vehicles. We've got this domestic resource. Let's work with the mining companies and government and third-party NGOs to make sure that we mine this following all of the standards set by government so that the risk of environmental damage is as close to zero as possible. I completely agree. I see all these conflicting ideas. There was actually another article that came out the other day. I won't name the group, but it was a pretty well-known think tank up in Washington, D.C., and it talked about, do we really need rare earths? Should we be rare earth mining? And I was like, that's 17 elements right there. I mean, that's using a lot of different applications, but it is that kind of disconnect. And then they're competing heads, right? And it will, it'll be interesting to see which one is successful. You know, one of the things that I think about a lot too, and this is one of my critiques of science and academia in some ways, is that I also think it's important to teach those technical skills. But one of the things that I think is going to be essential is the communication of geology and mineralogy to communities and to indigenous groups and why do we need these things and why this is important? And so 
I think companies, what we try to do here in Virginia is how can we help you do outreach and communication and engagement in local populations where you have mine sites? And also, how can we train geologists to communicate that science? Because I know a lot of really smart friends who are very smart, but if you ask them to communicate anything about their research, they start going off into random perspectives where anyone who doesn't know about geology is going to just fade and not really listen to that statement. And that's really important when you're trying to get people to understand that this is essential. I agree with you. You know, when I think about the state of Virginia, I think about the very large uranium deposit yeah. that was discovered and is is extremely well characterized in South Central Virginia. And it is not being mined because of the concerns, and they're just concerns, that it has the potential to cause harm to the environment. On the flip side, we've got now in Wyoming, we have a company with funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and others. They are now developing the prototype small-scale modular nuclear reactor. That nuclear reactor requires uranium. The war between Russia and Ukraine has brought uranium to the forefront because in the United States, about 20% of our electricity is nuclear. Worldwide, it's about 11%. In some countries, for example, France, it's almost 75% of their electricity is nuclear. If everybody's driving battery electric vehicles and heating and cooling with electricity, we have to significantly increase the electricity we produce. So these modular reactors are potentially, I don't want to call them the holy grail, but they have the potential to provide baseload power around the United States where we need them in major cities, and we need uranium to do that. So here we have in the state of Virginia a massive uranium resource that would allow us again to have domestic supply of uranium for these modular nuclear reactors, but mining companies can't get approval to mine that uranium despite the fact that the way they propose to mine that uranium, a process called in-situ leaching, it is well demonstrated in other parts of the United States that it has almost zero impact on the ecosystem. But we can't move the needle in Virginia. We can't change the mindset. Yeah, that was the Coles Hill uranium deposit, and I wrote a paper on that. It was really interesting. I actually did that in comparative to try to understand the whole NIMBY challenges that exist in Virginia. It was really interesting. It went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2019, and they shot that down. I think they were trying to use the federal government, but it all comes back to the states, right? So that was really interesting. So I guess the question that I have, going off the kind of Russian invasion of Ukraine and the war, it's really highlighted some of these supply chain challenges. So I guess the last question that I have is, how does the conflict in Ukraine And then the recent events with Taiwan highlight or really emphasize the need for America to resource supply chains and diversify and work with allies, because these are going to be really big challenges if an invasion of Taiwan happens and semiconductor supply chain go haywire. And then how does that emphasize why we need these supply chains here? When we look at the supply chain issues over the last few years, you know, for example, the freighter that got stuck in the Suez Canal. Right. And that caused hundreds of other ships not to be able to transit through the Suez Canal to Europe. We see the essentially elimination of grain exports from Ukraine for several months and the horrific negative impact that has on a variety of countries around the world. When you mention Taiwan, there are 
semiconductors produced in Taiwan that are only produced in that country. That's it. There's nowhere else to get them. So if that source is eliminated, then we would essentially in the United States not be able to complete the production of battery electric vehicles or computers or other technologies that require those semiconductors. What I see over the last few decades is society in more developed countries got complacent. It just got easy. You know, behind the scenes, mining companies found resources. They extracted those resources and made them available for the global industry of manufacturers. And everything was just sort of at our fingertips. We could go to the store and it's just there. We could go to the dealership and the car is just there. And what the war in in Ukraine is reminding us of with China's recent show of military force in the East China Sea off of Taiwan and Japan is reminding us of is that we as a country, the United States, have increasingly become dependent on a supply chain that is international. And it's not just an F-150 that's final production is in Mexico. It's everything that goes into that new F-150 that makes it work. It's wonderful for GM to want to build a battery manufacturing facility in Michigan or Ohio. But in order to build that battery manufacturing facility, you need the raw materials for the batteries. You need lithium, cobalt, nickel, aluminum. And all of those metals, we are almost completely reliant on imports from other countries. We're sort of at a pivotal time now where we need the United States, we need the administration in Washington to recognize through the work that the U.S. Geological Survey has done and others, how dependent we are. The metals that we use to build renewable energy infrastructure, they're referred to as critical metals for a reason. They are the roughly three dozen metals that with bipartisan support in Congress several years ago, they were deemed in critical short supply. And so the administration is aware of this. We need them to act. So final question. We always like to ask our guests this question, but in just a few sentences, why do minerals matter? I think we've highlighted it pretty well in the last two conversations, but just in general sense, why do minerals matter? I like to tell students there's a show called Naked and Afraid. And the reason that afraid is in that title is none of us want to go back to a naked and afraid lifestyle, right? We have an amazing modern world. Since 1900, the average life expectancy has doubled. Doubled. That's phenomenal. If we look at infant mortality, maternal mortality, We don't have measles and mumps and rubella and malaria in the United States because we used minerals to build an infrastructure, a medical infrastructure that allowed us to develop vaccines to eliminate those diseases. So we are where we are. We know how much energy we consume. And it's by the extraction of rare earth metals and the other critical metals that we can transition to a renewable energy infrastructure which will allow us to meet the IPCC goals of not increasing global temperatures more than one and a half degrees. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for joining us on the podcast and discussing some of these very salient and critical issues that we'll be facing in the years ahead. Until next time, I'm your host, Thomas Hale, and thanks for joining us on another insightful discussion on a rock and a hard place. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. 
Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website, Mineral Choices, for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. And until next time, keep on rocking.